What a great group of people are heading out the door. They are fantastic. My name is Dee. I am one of the pastors here as well at the church, and I have the privilege this morning of um, taking us into the uh, passage that was just read, this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, for those of you who have been around a few weeks, you may remember that we are um, in a series looking at the first several chapters of this letter from Paul to the church at Corinth. For those of you who might be guests this morning, welcome. It is so nice to have you here. I think that probably each message is pretty much self-contained, so you won't be behind, lost, or in any other fashion feel out of place. But I will give you the brief little background that this passage of Scripture is part of a letter that comes as a result of Paul's visit to Corinth where he stayed for about 18 months. Following that visit to Corinth, he went around the sea to Ephesus. And while at Ephesus, he received word from a couple different sources about some of the things that were happening in Corinth. And so he wrote a letter back to the church to address some of those issues. So that brings us up to where we are in chapter 3 where we have um, the portion that you just heard read, a portion of this letter where Paul is addressing some specific things. We always have to keep in mind the purpose of the entire letter and how this fits into that. I would like, if I could, though, to actually not begin there. I want to work my way toward this passage of Scripture. I'd like to actually begin in Mark chapter 15. Mark, one of the gospel writers, this passage is probably um, part of a story that several in this room would be pretty familiar with, but some maybe not. It is the story of Jesus' crucifixion. All of the gospels, the four gospel writers, tell us different parts of this story. We might read in one about the thieves that hung on the cross on either side of Jesus. We hear from another gospel writer about the centurion who um, was there beside the cross and made some interesting comments about Jesus. We have one gospel writer who tells us the story and draws on a passage out of Psalm um, that speaks about the... Um, Soldiers around casting lots for the remaining belongings of Jesus, his robe, his garment. They cast lots for it. <clears throat> we have a gospel writer that um, speaks about Mary and John in a conversation that took place, took place. In Mark chapter 15, verse 38. We have a portion of the story that, for me, is it's kind of fascinating at multiple levels. It comes at the point where Jesus says, it is finished, and dies. And then in verse 38, it says that the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now, if that makes no sense to you, that's okay. In the temple where the Jewish people worshipped was a section that was separated off and called the Holy of Holies. 
The Holy of Holies was separated from the other portion of the temple by this curtain that went from the top to the bottom. And it was a sacred place, a place where several items from their history were kept, a place where it believed the Spirit of God was dwelling. And so once a year, a priest would go into the Holy of Holies to do a couple things related to the priestly practice. It was such a sacred space that time has passed on that one of the traditions was that they would tie a um, rope around the ankle of the priest who went in once during the year. And if they were in there too long, if there was a problem, if something went terribly wrong and they needed to get the priest out of the Holy of Holies, instead of going into that space and risking somebody else having similar problems or fates, they would just pull the rope and pull the priest out. Interesting practice, but it was a recognition of how sacred, how holy, how um, awe-inspiring that holy of holy place was. When Jesus died... Mark tells us that that curtain was ripped from top to bottom. And I have always viewed that passage as implying or communicating that now we all have access to the Holy of Holies. That the curtain is open and everyone has the privilege of entering into God's presence. I believe that's true and I believe that is appropriate to amen that moment. I think that that is accurate. But as I have wrestled with the passage we're looking at this week, I have to confess that I have started thinking about that verse in a different way. Certainly, it opens up the possibility that we can enter into the sacred space. But I wonder if what a part of what Mark was trying to communicate in that verse is that God's Holy Spirit has been let loose. God's on the move. God's Spirit is going crazy among us. God is reaching into places that we never anticipated. God's light moving into places of darkness. God reaching into corners where we didn't expect grace to show up. We didn't expect love to become evident. We didn't think that it would be possible in this dark corner, this shadow space, for God's Spirit to show up and to begin to transform this spot. God's on the loose. I have to confess, I am so many times so much like the Israelites. The Israelites, God's people, had this wonderful relationship where God functioned as, as their, their ruler, their judge, their king. This relationship they had was directly with God, and, and yet they became jealous of neighboring countries, neighboring groups of people that had something they didn't have. They had an earthly ruler. 
an earthly king. And the people said, I think that's what we want. We'd like to have somebody that we can actually see. I know that we can pray to and hope that we get a response from God, but sometimes we're a little uncertain as exactly what God might be saying. It'd be really nice to have like a king that we could see, talk to, and we could hear the response. And so God says in the Old Testament, said, okay. And Saul became their king. They came out of slavery, out of Egypt. And, and one of the powerful pieces of the journey through the desert was there was a tent that was the tent of meeting, the dwelling place of God. This tent traveled with them through the desert and into this setting of the desert, the people, the people found their encampment around the tent of meeting. So on every side where the tent was, where God dwelt, were the people. Wherever the people went, the tent of meeting went. God was abiding with God's people. When they entered into the promised land, it just seems to me that they wanted what they saw others had. They wanted a temple, a, a place for God to dwell, a permanent structure for God's spirit to be. We have the story of multiple temples that have been built. And into this temple was created this sacred space, this holy of holies. It became in Jerusalem the place for pilgrimage, the place where people would go to to engage in spiritual activities. It became the centerpiece for spirituality. But the people lived all around, lived everywhere. They would periodically make this journey for sacrifices, for other reasons, but at least in their mind, God dwelt in Jerusalem, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. Thank you for that amen. Grateful. It was in this place and in this format that the people of God, it seems to me, found it possible to keep God bounded. To create an understanding of God that was limited in so many ways. And I do the same thing. I create places for God to be. I limit God's ways in which God works. Not because God is limited, but because I have created these sacred spaces for God. These places where I can go to meet God. And in so doing, I have left myself so shortchanged of what God would do. Is it possible that the curtain was ripped from top to bottom in my life? Well, it is possible. It's what God has promised. I just don't know that I've lived into it. God's on the loose. 
God's at work. God is moving into all of the unexpected places if I will allow God to do that in my own life. Back in the 70s, Nikolai Ceausescu, and I'm not even sure I ever pronounced that name correctly, was the ruler in Romania. And he decided after having some, seen some places that so impressed him in Korea and in France that he was going to build something that would be the jewel for the people that would give them such a sense of significance in the capital of Bucharest that it, um, it became, became his sole endeavor. And so in this place, he began to put forth a plan in the late 70s that started to be implemented in the early 80s. Sometime around 1982, he began to level major portions of the city places that had such rich history and deep tradition, and he would level city blocks for his plan. The plan was to build the House of the Republic or the Palace of the Parliament. It's gone by several names. It's one of three structures that you can see from the moon. I wouldn't know. I've not been to the moon, but I'm told that you could see it from the moon. The three are the Great Wall of China, the Pentagon, and the Palace of the Parliament. It is the heaviest structure or building on the planet. I had the privilege around the year 2000 of visiting Romania and going on a tour through this place. It is enormous. Determined to use almost all Romanian um, products to build this place with the exception of some very large doors that were donated by a ruler in Africa that was a friend of his. But in order to underwrite the cost of this, he had to go into great debt as a country. And in going into great debt, he had to export so much of the products that were produced by the people of Romania, that the poverty in Romania skyrocketed. Deaths by starvation, less than adequate shelter. It was a terrible time in the 80s, the expense of this palace that was built. It was a place in the front where he intended for he and his family to live in what was actually palace quarters. And then behind that front space, were the governmental places where the offices would be held and they would meet and pass legislation. His paranoia increased over the years. And out in front of the palace was this large boulevard that went down to the heart of the city. And they had leveled blocks and put up new structures. And there were apartment units about mm, five or six stories high, as I recall, that came up and curved around in front and faced the palace. As I said, his paranoia increased to the point where he decided that in all of those apartments that faced the palace, no one would be allowed to live. They would be vacant. But because he wanted it to appear as far better than it was, there were workers who went in several times a week and put fresh flowers in the windows 
of all of those apartments and made sure that the curtains were drawn for visitors and others who would come to visit the palace. I went on a tour. It was a fascinating tour. As much about the extravagance of this place, <clears throat> I think there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,600 rooms and areas, only 400 of which ever got completely finished. 12 floors above the ground, 8 floors beneath the ground, the bottom floor containing a bunker with walls so thick that radiation couldn't get through because he lived in fear of a nuclear war, and he wanted to be one of the ones who survived. On this tour, I, I remember distinctly the tour guides seeming so depressed or irritated or frustrated that I was there and everyone else who was on the tour, and I wasn't quite sure why. I didn't know if by chance it was a national holiday, but they had to be there to give tours to tourists. I, I didn't know if this was the last thing they wanted to do. I, I wondered if for some reason they might be embarrassed by the opulence compared to the rest of Romania. I don't know if they were ashamed of what it was that had happened over the course of the last 15 to 20 years in their country. I wasn't sure, but the answers to questions were very short, short one word or short phrases, response. Some questions you can't get answers to as you would ask them. But I remember very clearly going into one of these large meeting rooms. Uh, the one I think that we were, that I remember in particular was about the size of this room actually. Gorgeous in every way. The adornment on the ceiling, the wall hangings and the carpets. 200 thousand square meters of carpet for this place. The carpet tapestries and carpets in several of the rooms so large that they actually had to build the looms in the room to complete these things. And I remember in this room going up, <clears throat> there was one on the floor, but there was also one hanging on the wall, allowed to go up fairly close. And when you get up very close, you can see the individual fibers, the fabric, the, the pieces that were loomed together. And when you're that close, you can just see the singular pieces of material, and the thought that crosses your mind is, how could somebody weave this line, this singular color, realizing that that close you can hardly tell what there is that's being depicted in this tapestry. And the tapestry was not just a collection of colors. It depicted a story. It was part of their history. There were people, there were topography, they were depicted on these large tapestries, stories. But up close, all you could see was the singular fabric or the singular color. It's not until you stepped way back and stood at a distance that you could see all that was being depicted. I wonder as a single worker working on some portion of this enormous task if they understood the vision that had been cast for what was going to be created once it was all together. Here's what I believe about this passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul uses several metaphors, not just here but other places, but here he talks about that we are God's building. 
God's temple. We are God's garden. I, I think it's appropriate to say we are God's tapestry. It's easy to get up close and to see an, an individual singular kind of unit and maybe make an assumption that all of God's temple looks the same. That when I'm up close and interacting with a, a, a singular group in this amazing tapestry, I can make the assumption that everything looks like this. But if I could, if it'd be possible for me to step back and to see the gorgeous storyline of God's temple, I would see a depiction of history and present and future hope that God has woven into this place called God's temple. Jesus, at one point in time, was talking to some who had raised some questions. And in raising those questions, he commented about the temple and he said that a day is coming soon when there will not be one stone left upon another. And that happened. The magnificent temple that Herod bought, had built for the Jewish people got completely destroyed. Completely destroyed. And I think that so many view that as such a tragedy. And yet, and yet, it may have actually been of great mercy. A mercy that says God cannot be contained in a building because you are God's temple. What might it have meant to the Romanian people if their king had said, you are the palace. You are the most valuable resource our country has. And yet that's exactly what our king has said. That's exactly what our Lord has said about us. You are my temple. You are the most valuable thing I have. You are my creation. And I not only want to dwell with you, I want to dwell in you. In this passage, in 319, just like six, uh, 316, just like 619 in 1 Corinthians, it tells us that both are true. It says that you personally, the individual, are God's temple, but you are also part of the collection of those who God has called God's children, and we together are God's temple. Well, that begins to change everything. How do we know that we are functioning as God's temple is supposed to function? It's a good question. Here is, here is something that helps me to understand what it means to function as God's temple. Um, some of you who have been around a while know that I have the, this, this incredible distinction um, on my high school basketball team, but I think it's also true of the entire league in which I played, and maybe true for the entire state of Michigan, that I was the only basketball player who was the captain of his high school basketball team and sat the bench. <laughs> I just don't know of anyone else that carried that distinction. I would go out at the beginning of the game, shake hands with the other captains, 
listen to all the things that the ref would say, do my nodding, and then I'd walk back and find my spot on the bench, and that's where I'd sit through most of the game. I think it was a ploy by my coach to intimidate the other players that, you know, we have so many good players that even our captain sits the bench. I don't know, but that was where I would go every game. But I do remember coach teaching me something that I have never forgotten. As some of you probably know, basketball is a game that includes a lot of attempted fakes, fake outs. You are trying to fake out your um, opponent when they are playing defense. You might have the basketball and you can pretend as if you're about to make a pass to someone else and then never let go of the ball. And the intent of that fake is so that the defender will be thrown off and flinch and move in that direction. And if that player flinches, you have the potential then to dribble right past them. You can do the same fake with a foot. You can do it with a head nod. You can do it in all kinds of ways. The attempt is to get the defensive player to be off guard just enough, flinch just enough, so that you can dribble past them, shoot over them, or pass around them. As we were playing defense, I recall very clearly my coach instructing me and saying, keep your eye on your opponent's torso, his stomach. If he moves with his stomach, he's there. There's no fake with the torso. There's no pretend movement. You have to move your whole body again if you're going to go in the opposite direction. If you keep your eye on that center piece of the person's body, if they move, they're there. There's no faking with the center of who you are. I think that that is also true in terms of our spiritual journey. I, I can do a lot of great religious moves, make some great motions that act as if I am compassionate, that give a nice head nod toward forgiveness. All of the things that can look like I'm moving in that direction but when the centerpiece of who I am moves toward kindness toward another, hospitality toward my neighbor, compassion to the one who's hurting, when I love my neighbor as myself, there's no faking that. I'm there. To have done that moves me into the place of being obedient to God's call in my life to act as God's temple. I can't fake that movement when the center of who I am has moved there. All the rest of the stuff is just head nods and arm motions and leg flexing and gyrations. But when I actually move into those places, of caring and loving and forgiving my neighbor and loving the other person like I love myself. I have exemplified what it means to be God's temple. But I'd like to say one last thing in conclusion, and that's this, that so often we find it difficult to do that well because we've not dealt with the stuff that's in our own life first. 
So often the things that I criticize about others are the blind spots in my own life. So often the anger and frustration or the critique that comes out against somebody else is simply a reflection of my inability to allow God to work in some of the shadow spaces of my own journey. I have found myself time and again, once somebody brings it to my attention, that my fears, my anxiety, my hurts are less a reflection of the other person that I find myself so easy marginalizing or critiquing and far more an issue of having not allowed God to get out of the space behind the curtain and into every corner of my life. I'm telling you God's spirit is on the loose and wants to work in every corner of your life's journey. And when I begin to allow God to get out of those spaces where I have boxed God off, which is so easy to do, my generation and the generation that follows, giving attention to God has become a very important piece of self-actualization. It's one of many tools, but it's a really important one because it's an important part of my life, my spirituality. So I need to acknowledge this spiritual part of my life and this God piece becomes a great tool in helping me to know myself better and become all that I was intended to be. But that is so far from what Scripture calls us to. The place that Scripture calls us to is that Christ becomes my identity. Christ becomes the center of my life as opposed to a tool that helps me to self-actualize my life. Christ becomes the center point of my identity so that I know myself in the light of Christ. In order for that to happen, God has to come out from behind the curtain and enter into every part of my life. God's spirit's on the loose, is ready to go crazy in my life's journey if I will allow God to do that. And when that happens in my journey, it changes the way in which I look toward others. Because the tapestry that's my life begins to paint a picture of God's love so that I might then become part of the tapestry of this body of believers. What might it be like for us to live into that? For us to embrace that truth in our life. I invite you into a few moments of reflection. The band's not going to come up just yet. And invite us to think for a moment of what it might mean for the curtain to part completely in your life for the spirit to be let loose. What might that look like in your life's journey? What parts of the tapestry have been so dominant that you've had a difficult time seeing the whole picture? Paul didn't demean their factions because of who they were following in Cephas and Apollos and Paul. He was simply saying, you're too myopic. You're, you're focusing on the minutia. Wait until you see Apollos through the light of Christ. Wait until you see Cephas when Christ is at the center. 
these things become so much more beautiful when you allow God free reign to be all that God wants to be in your life. God's spirit is on the loose. Please allow God's spirit to work in your life this morning. To allow all the pieces of who you are to be invaded by God's love and grace and transformational power. Open up this morning to God's presence moving into all of the shadow spaces, pushing away the darkness, redeeming the toxic areas that you thought you had to clean up. Don't make excuses. Don't debate God. Simply surrender to God. Don't explain to God all the things you have yet to do or that you need to do. Just receive God's grace. Don't act as if it's impossible for God to move in your life. God's had far tougher cases and has never failed. Quit striving for the self-worth in other things. Be reminded of Romans 8. 38, 39, it says that nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing, nothing. This morning, let the curtain tear from top to bottom. Let the Spirit have free reign. Receive God's truth in your life. Oh Lord, this is the church we want to be. This is the picture of what we want to be as your children. We certainly have made choices that have produced messes. God, I just had the feeling that for most of those choices, it was the best we knew to do at the time. Please take those things, redeem them. Father, we need help with our addictions, with the things that have grabbed hold of um, who we are. We have such a tough time setting down those chains. It's a desire of our heart, but our spirit just doesn't seem strong enough to engage. And yet it's not our spirit that needs to be at work. It's your spirit. Step into those places, Lord. Help us to stop dictating the outcome as if we know how you're going to work, whether in an instant or over time. God, help us to stop predicting the future, but instead rest in your presence right now because Proverbs tells us that in your presence is healing. So help us to simply dwell in the presence of your spirit and then allow the healing to begin. Oh, Lord, keep us from hindering anything of your spirit working. Oh, be on the loose in our life. Find your way into all of the places of our journey. Help us individually and collectively to be your temple, your dwelling place, your place of abiding. What an incredible, hopeful promise. 
I invite the band to come forward. This truth sets us free. This truth invites us to be God's dwelling place and partner. This truth, God's free reign in our life, all of a sudden allows us to make sense of all that God has called us to be, not in our own strength, but because the Spirit has free reign to work in our life. Thanks be to God. Lead us, band, as we continue to worship together.